Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star review. Now, this week, we're going to take a deep look at what's happening in global energy markets. Last week, Saudi Arabia and its friends in OPEC Plus ignored President Biden's pleas and opted to cut their target for oil production by 2 million barrels a day. That's a move that's expected to keep global oil prices high with far-reaching economic and political implications. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is looking for alternatives, including perhaps even relaxing sanctions on Venezuela. And of course, all this is happening as Europe is battening down the hatches ahead of a cold winter with soaring prices for natural gas in the context of Russia's war on Ukraine. Well, to discuss all this, I'm joined by the world's leading authority on all matters energy, Daniel Jurgen. Daniel literally wrote the book on the energy business with his Pulitzer Prize-winning work, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power. As I say, he's the world's leading guru on energy matters and written many other works, including his latest book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. He founded Cambridge Energy Research Associates and has advised governments around the world on energy policy, and he's now vice chair of S&P Global. Daniel Jurgen joins me now. Daniel, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be with you. So, Dan, tell us where we are. We've been seeing this turbulence in global energy markets really all the way through this year. In the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, gas prices and oil prices shot up. Oil went way above $100 a barrel. Came down somewhat over the summer, not all the way back, but sort of floated downwards somewhat below $100 a barrel, down actually into the 70s a barrel. And then in the last month or so, it's picked up again and had this effort by the Biden administration, unsuccessful effort, to try to get oil production up to keep prices down or to push prices is down. He was rebuffed by Saudi Arabia and OPEC+. Plus. He's talking to other countries now, possibly, about getting oil production going. So give us a sense. What's going on here? What's the balance of supply and demand? What's happening with oil and other energy prices? Give us the global context, Dan. Jerry, I think the most important thing to note is that the energy crisis did not begin on February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine. It really began about six months earlier when we saw the beginnings of a global energy crisis. And it was three months before the invasion of Ukraine that the Biden administration did its first release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that it began talking to the U.S. oil industry about raising production. So I think what we've really had is a collision here, a collision between a global energy crisis as a result of what I call preemptive underinvestment in oil and gas and even coal. And all those prices were shooting up last year at this time. And then, of course, the invasion, which has just amplified it because Russia is one of the world's three largest oil producers and also provides 38% of Europe's natural gas, or at least it did before this war. So where are we now? You know, Again, I said oil prices came down a little bit over the summer. Natural gas prices did too. And by the way, I think part of that at least was expectations of a recession, right? I mean, the expectations that demand was going to be falling as the world, you know, all the economic forecasts we saw from the IMF forecast this week that the world is going to get very close to a to a recession next year. Some countries may have a very severe one. So where are we in terms of the global supply demand balance and what that means for prices and indeed what it means for output? Well, first in terms of natural gas, let's start there 
because that's where the most immediate crisis is and, and really uh, how deeply destabilizing it is for Europe. And Europe is trying desperately to make up for the virtual cessation of Russian natural gas. It's turned to LNG. The global LNG markets really have nothing more to give. So Europe has been looking at gas prices that are like 10 times normal. And I think for Europe, the whole big question is, how cold is it going to be this winter? Because they do have gas in storage. But Putin is banking on basically his part of his strategy. His, he's waging an energy war in Europe. It's the second front in the Ukraine war. He laid it out in June what the strategy is, is economic hardship, social turmoil, bring populist parties to power, change the elites, as he put it. And so he's basically, Russian gas has virtually stopped to Europe. And that means the gas markets around the world are very tight. Countries in Asia that were depending upon LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, can't get it. So they're burning more coal or they're just having brownout. So that's on the natural gas front. On the oil front, the markets have eased up somewhat. But the big thing that's happening in oil is, and I think what this OPEC decision was, was a preamble to it, is the ban on December 5th of Europe importing crude oil from Russia, seaborne crude oil. And on top of that, banning insurance and shipping services. And so this is holding out the potential for a lot of dislocation in the global market shortfall. And the U.S. government seeing that, you know, oh, is India not going to get oil? What's going to happen? Is there going to be an oil crisis? Has come up with a notion of putting a price cap on Russian oil, which the G7, the Western countries would say, Thou shalt pay no more than this for Russian oil. The idea is to deprive Putin of some of his oil revenues, but still keep the oil flowing. And this is all, we're talking about tankers, this all uncharted waters. How bad could it get? Let's talk about Europe for a brief moment. As you said, tenfold increase in natural gas prices. How bad could it get? If it is a bad winter, I mean, governments are spending huge amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars between them, of euros and pounds between them, to essentially protect their consumers against these enormous increases in prices. So to some extent, the governments are absorbing a lot of the price shock. What about the actual physical capacity, though? You mentioned that they've been storing up a lot of natural gas, which they hope will get them through the winter. But if it's a bad winter, could we see actual physical shortages of energy that requires, you know, uh, you know, outages and everything? Yes. I think we'd see some kind of rationing, some kind of allocation of supply, as it is for, like, let's say, industry in Germany. This is already a crisis situation that, you know, either fertilizer plants aren't operating, which is bad for food production. Other plants are shutting down. So you'd see a kind of a shuttering of economic activity. And, you know, Europe, I think, is already headed into a recession and it would be more severe. And then comes the social and political turbulence that comes with that. We already saw that play out in Italy, where Mario Draghi, who had gone in a train to Kiev to pledge support for Ukraine, forced out by a populist reaction. So there will be economic turmoil and could be political turmoil. That's a bad case if you have a cold winter. How quickly can they replace the natural gas that they're so dependent on from Russia? I mean, they're talking about perhaps, you know, LNG imports maybe from the United States elsewhere. They're restarting nuclear power plants. What else can they do and how quickly can they get that on stream? Well, the biggest thing they've done is turn towards natural gas. And it's interesting. The U.S. has gone from nowhere six years ago. It was not a natural gas LNG exporter, natural gas exporter 
Today, it is tied with Australia as the world's top LNG exporter. Typically, U.S. LNG is sold into Asian markets, but right now, almost 70% of U.S. LNG is going to Europe. I've seen Europeans here in Washington. I've seen them in Houston. Governments, companies are all running around trying to sign up new LNG deals, but you don't build these plants overnight. They take a couple of years. So LNG has been the major backstop. And like Germany, which had no interest at all in LNG, is now commissioning five of these what are called regasification ships that come in that take LNG and then distribute it. But LNG is pretty much maxed out. So what else are they doing? Well, the Germans are sort of holding those couple of nuclear power plants that they were going to shut down, kind of holding them in abeyance. The other thing is uh, burning more coal. Coal consumption uh, has gone up in, in Europe. And it's interesting, the German economics minister, Robert Habeck, who's a leader of the Green Party, was asked about using natural gas and even coal. And he said, well, there's no black and white in energy. There are only shades of gray. So right now, Europeans are very focused on where else can they get supplies? And you had the chancellor of Germany, for instance, flying to Senegal, to Qatar, to Canada for future LNG supplies. People have talked a lot about this, of course, but it was incredibly short-sighted policies, wasn't it? I mean, this obsession with renewables you know, under tremendous pressure, the election of these green governments or green coalitions, Germany shutting down its nuclear power after the Fukushima accident in 2011. I mean, they seem to think that somehow that they would be able to bridge however long this gap is until we have a sustainable future with imports from Russia. And nobody seemed to think through the geopolitical considerations there and the risk that they were taking. Yeah, I think that's quite right, Jerry. I mean, I don't think it was wrong for Germany to be importing gas from Europe because, you know, once, particularly once the Soviet Union collapsed, it's better to integrate Russia into the global economy than not. I mean, what was the alternative to just leave it out with nuclear weapons. But I think the mistake was, as you're suggesting, not building energy security into that. And it turned out that Chancellor Merkel made a decision over a weekend after Fukushima accident in Japan to shut down German nuclear power, which was about 25% of their electricity. And you know, with no thought that you, you were taking away part of your optionality, even Japan did not completely shut down its nuclear power. And in fact, it's uh, stepping it up again. And they just had no interest in other sources of natural gas, i.e. LNG, because they just thought, well, we'll continue to import Russian gas and we'll just move rapidly towards renewables. But it turns out that you still need a lot of oil, gas, and it turns out even coal to run your economies. We're going to take a short break there. But when we come back, we'll have more with Daniel Jurgen on the global energy crisis. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. I'm back with Daniel Jurgen, author of 
many books on energy, including his latest, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Let's talk about the US now. The US obviously in a much more favorable position than Europe in terms of energy security and energy supply. And yet we do have problems here. Obviously, oil prices, we've talked about that. Global oil prices have gone up. That affects all Americans, businesses and consumers, particularly in terms of gas prices at the pump. Tell us a little bit about how the administration has been handling this, because initially Biden came in with a very firm line against Saudi Arabia over its human rights record, particularly obviously over that awful killing of Jamal Khashoggi. He said Saudi Arabia was going to be a pariah. Then when oil prices shoot up, he decides obviously he needs more oil production around the world. He goes famous fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman then essentially rebuffs him by tightening oil production. And now they're talking about alternative sources, perhaps even getting Chevron in Venezuela to pump oil. Tell us, what's the Biden administration trying to do here? Well, I think it came in only focused on its renewable agenda and its climate agenda. One of the very first things that President Biden did was shut down uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have brought additional oil from Canada into the United States which leads to this incongruous situation of going to a city that begins with C.A., Caracas, but not going to a city called C.A., that's Calgary, to talk to the Canadians. I mean, that's the, the one country that's just been interesting left off because I guess after Keystone XL, you can't go back there. But I think what started to happen then last autumn, as I said, before the war, was a recognition that actually oil prices were going up, supplies were tight, there had been insufficient investment. And the only place in the world that was actually showing any significant growth in production was the United States. And so there had been sort of outreach to the industry, encouraging them. But at the same time, also very much the playbook of yesteryears, the warning against price gouging and so forth at the same time. So it's kind of a mixed message. But right now, the administration is saying we want more supplies. In fact, there's Joe Biden, who promised more LNG, more natural gas to Europe. And I think one of the things that's really striking to me, Jerry, is shales, you know, that long controversy over it. The U.S., it did change the position of the U.S., became the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the world. But what the change is now is that U.S. LNG has now become one of the foundations of European energy security. And Europe is prepared to rely upon the United States in a way that just simply was not in the books, well, I'd say, you know, a year ago. How to characterize what the administration is trying to do? As you said, they came in committed to all about renewables, and now they're trying to get the oil production up around the world, as you say, in other countries, except from here on the continent of North America. By the way, and the Wall Street Journal's reported, I think, that this administration has granted fewer permits for drilling, I think, than any, I think, in recent history. Again, are they still pursuing this aggressive campaign, if you like, against fossil fuels, even as they're trying to actually get more oil and gas in, in, in the United States? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, there's certainly been a change in orientation as to where they were when they came in, but there's still their commitment. You know, you've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, which is just enormous amount of tax credits, basically, to go for developing renewables. Also interesting for alternatives like hydrogen and carbon capture, but that's their central motif where they're going. But I think the reality of supply, and I think this issue of preemptive underinvestment, some people are, you know, were looking even before the Ukraine war and saying, are we seeing the first energy crisis of the energy transition because of underinvestment? Tell us about the economics of the various different sources of energy that we have. I mean, one thing 
obviously that with elevated oil prices, as you say, which have been going on for more than a year now, and oil, again, for part of this year was over $100 a barrel, you've seen these big increases in natural gas prices. Presumably, that obviously changes the economics of other energy production. Nuclear, which has always been sort of on the expensive, has been on somewhat on the expensive side, presumably becomes more competitive when oil is priced at that level. And renewables too. Tell us about the economics. No, it's interesting because we sort of have to kind of do a division in our mind because renewables are basically, for the most part, about electricity. So they're replacing coal and natural gas and generation, and as you say, nuclear. Oil, you know, it's really the pressure for basically electric cars and pushing greater efficiency in vehicles at a very rapid rate. But I think it's very interesting about nuclear because, in fact, people are building new nuclear power plants in the U.S. or a couple of them. But the costs have maybe tripled. I'm not sure if that's exactly the number, but they're way much higher. So nobody is going to build a new traditional nuclear power plant in the United States. In fact, part of the problem is that they're shutting them down and they are baseload and they are, by the way, carbon free. And California reversed itself and said, we're going to keep our last nuclear power plant going longer because we're suffering from blackouts in California. But where there is a lot of activity is around what's called small nuclear reactors. And there are like 60 companies, research organizations that are working on new designs for nuclear power in the United States to kind of bring it into the mix. Other countries are moving ahead. United Arab Emirates now has four new nuclear power plants. So I think there is definitely a rethink of nuclear going on and about kind of next generation and what their role will be. And nuclear is baseload to use it the official term that it doesn't go up and down with the wind and the sun. But what's the potential then? I mean, you know, as you say, that these old traditional nuclear reactors are generally being phased out, but these smaller ones maybe have great potential. I mean, how great is the potential for nuclear power to meet our energy needs, say, over the next 20, 25 years? How much could it provide? I mean, nuclear, at least until recently, was about 20% of our electricity. And if we could hold it at 20%, that would be a great thing because it provides diversity and it provides a stability. But the small nuclear reactors, which are you know much talked about, still going to be several years before deployment and people looking at sort of like around 2030 for them. But they are moving through the regulatory process. It takes a long time to get a nuclear technology approved. So let's talk about renewables. As you say, we know about the problems that they have. They're not baseload. I mean, they have highly variable supply. What's the realistic, the extreme environmentalists, shall we call them, the green crowd, been telling us for years that they can supply most of our energy needs? What realistically can we expect from renewables? Well, I think obviously the costs of solar have come way down. Thank you, Chinese manufacturing, which China produces about 80% of the world's solar panels. Wind costs have come down, not as dramatically as solar costs have done. And going forward, almost most of the new capacity that's going to be built in the United States is going to be wind and solar for regulatory reasons, for ESG reasons, a whole host of reasons. And I think the goal that the U.S. would be have carbon-free electricity by 2035, I don't see that happening. That's 12 years away. I think natural gas is going to continue to have an important role to balance out wind and solar. The ambition is that batteries, big batteries will come on that can store wind and solar, but um, they're not there yet. And, you know, it's a one of the big prizes out there is to get batteries that would be competitive. So I think wind and solar will be certainly a growing part of our electricity. But I think at the same time, the fact that you have that intermittency, you have to balance them differently. I think you have to 
run a power system. So if on the one hand, we're moving to be ever more dependent upon electricity, electrification, well, it has to be reliable basically all the time. Particularly, Jerry, if you're charging your car from an electric plug and not going to a gasoline station. Yeah, having just had the experience of driving a rental electric car around Britain, I can assure you that the... Uh, how was it? Tell us. Well, it was terrible because the range on these cars, you know, this is the 200-mile range, and Britain's not a big country, obviously, but 200 miles, even Britain doesn't take you very far. And the charging stations, a few and far between, many of them aren't working. If they are, they sometimes take an hour and a half to charge. The infrastructure seems to me is a long way from being there, and I think it's the same in the U.S., obviously, where... Uh, driving distances are even larger. So I was taking my daughter around Britain, visiting family, and the only car they had available, well, I didn't want one, particularly the only car they had available was an electric vehicle. And I thought well, this would be interesting, but it was enormously frustrating because, you know, you spend half your time on the GPS looking for the next charging station and worrying about whether your, your car's going to lose its charge before you get to the next charging station. And, say, and then when you get to the charging station, if you actually find one, you can sit there and spend two hours waiting for the car to charge. So, Jerry, I see a column coming. Yes, I haven't actually written that one yet, but I should. Back on to renewables. So you know, if, if the fundamentalists, as I call them, the, the climate change extremists, they constantly tell us time's running out. We've got 10 years to save the planet, five years to save the planet. They ascribe every single adverse weather effect from heat to cold to rain to drought to wind to absence of wind. Everything is ascribed to this uh, terrible uh, man-made climate change. Daniel, give us a rational picture of the situation now and what we need to do. When I was writing my new book, which is the new map, I said, okay, everybody's talking about energy transition. What is an energy transition? So I said, okay, I look back at all the other energy transitions and they began the beginning of the 18th century, 1709, when an English metal worker figured out you could make uh, iron better using coal than wood. But they all took a long time, like a century, and they never actually, the old energy source didn't go away. Oil overtakes coal in the 1960s. Today, the world uses three times as much coal. So what's being tried here is something that's just entirely different that just hasn't been done before, which is to change the energy foundations or the ambition to change the energy foundations of, you know, I don't know, it depends, recession or not, but around a $90 trillion world economy uh, in a quarter of a century. Well, that's never been done before. That's a pretty ambitious thing to do. And the notion that things would just go in a straight line and would be just the same as, as a PowerPoint, I don't think the real world operates that way. So, you know, I think that there's a general direction towards this decarbonization, but it's going to be a lot more complicated. And if you talk to, you know, people in developing countries, they're saying, well, we're glad to have renewables, but what we really need is a natural gas pipeline so that, you know, women don't have to gather wood and that billions of people won't have indoor air pollution. So, Sometimes it seems to me there's kind of a Western Europe, North America focus on all these questions and not looking at the much more complicated thing in the rest of the world where about 80% of the world's people live where it's going to be a more mixed answer. And this net zero target, again, depending where you are in the world, governments are supposedly committed to it as a result of the Paris and COP26 and all these other international conferences that there have been. But it's an extraordinarily ambitious target. I was looking at the you know the carbon emissions, even in 2020, the pandemic year, when for a large part of the year, the world was shut down and people were sort of shut in their homes. Even in that year, carbon emissions around the world, I think, still increased in that. I mean, obviously, we know carbon emissions in the United States have been declining, still increased. So this idea of being able to get to a net net zero position in 10, 15 years time, this kind of transition has never been done before. It's implausible, isn't it? Well, I, I think so. I think it's when one propounds targets like that, one should have some modesty about it. First of all, at one point, even the International Energy Agency said half the commercial technology that you need to get there doesn't even exist. 
And by the way, there's this other side of it too, Jerry, which has really been kind of, for the most part, ignored, which we've looked into recently, was what does it mean in terms of minerals? Because it isn't just the wind and the sun. You know, you move from big oil to big shovels, there's going to be so much mining. And I've looked at it in terms of copper, and there's a huge gap. And you're going to need a lot of copper if you want to electrify the entire world. Right. And by the way, that's going to shift the balance of power, presumably away from oil-rich countries to mineral-rich countries. Yeah. To give you an example, 38% of world copper, two countries, Chile and Peru, 42% of copper smelted where? China. So, you know, yeah, you're moving from one kind of geopolitics of energy to another kind of geopolitics of energy. Tell us about the technology. I think a lot of people who don't go along with the extremist sort of climate fundamentalists reside a lot of hope and expectation in technological innovation. And, you know, you've talked a little bit already about carbon capture and hydrogen fuel. Give us a sense of, again, what, what might be realistic, setting aside renewable wind and solar, the problems of which we're familiar with. What's the technological frontier in some of these energy fields that could actually help us achieve these goals? Well, the big one that's obviously quite striking is that, you know, three years ago, nobody was really talking about hydrogen as a replacement for natural gas. Suddenly, everywhere I go in the world and talk to people in energy industry or governments, hydrogen is at the top of the list. And the EU has said that 25% of its energy might come from hydrogen by 2050, which is a quarter of a century away, give or take. But I think my own reaction to it is that it's early days and you know you're going to really need scale you're going to need markets you're going to need confidence in the technology so it's going to be a few years before we really can know whether hydrogen really is going to be a major player i don't see how you do this without carbon capture because in fact i think even in the very aggressive international energy agency scenario you still have oil and gas and people have no idea how much, well, even an electric car is 20% plastic. Your North Face jacket, if you have one of those jackets, is basically an oil product. Your Tylenol is an oil product. So there are a lot of things that just people don't realize. Your furniture, how much of it is, as well as the combustion in one form or another. So I think it's just a much more complicated picture. And as I said, to try in 25 years. So, But I think those are some of the technologies. Batteries is an area where a great deal of work is going on. Also requires, though, again, minerals, lithium. And- so, yeah, so what we did in our study on copper is we said, okay, how much copper do you need if you're going to achieve these kind of 2050 goals of net zero? So we looked at it on a sub-technology basis. How much each component of an offshore wind An electric car uses two and a half times more copper than a conventional car. You go down the list, you say, you know, there's this whole energy transition demand on top of the traditional demand for copper. And lo and behold, when you add it up, you say that basically to achieve these goals, probably copper demand would double. And then you say, and where are you going to get that copper from? Because it has to be mined and you have to have governments who want it to be mined. Well, in the United States, well, Copper production in the United States is half of what it was a couple of decades ago. Try and get a permit for a new mine in the United States or in many other countries. So there's a whole constraint there that has just, I think, been ignored in the discussion, and it's just assumed that it will all take care of itself. 
I want to ask you quickly about ESG, the E part of ESG, where it's become quite controversial. I mean, it became the sort of the defining trend in global investing, I think, in the last 10, 15 years, led by very aggressively by some very big famous funds, BlackRock, perhaps most notably, requiring companies to meet all kinds of environmental standards and targets. The sort of shine seems to be coming off a lot of the ESG investing and BlackRock themselves are under a lot of pressure. What's your sense of where that's headed? What do you tell your clients where that's going? Well, I think companies still feel that pressure very much. But what they've noticed, well, it was interesting. I was talking to one energy company and it's a sign of the times. And this company was saying, well, they made their round scene investors last year, the year before it was all ESG. Jerry, you know what it was this year? Returns, financial returns. So I think the shine has come off. Obviously, we've seen a lot of discussion, including on your editorial pages on that subject. And I think a kind of rethink. And I think this kind of preemptive underinvestment that results is quite dangerous because it does create crises. So I think just from this example, you know, I think that, and from the discussion, there is a rethinking about it and how do you evaluate those? So I think it's still a very strong thrust there, but it's kind of maybe ESG 2.0. Yeah. I like to say ESG was a fantastic strategy when interest rates were zero and returns, you know, the, the period of, you know, it, it happened to coincide with that period from the end of the global financial crisis to about a year ago when equity returns were 20% a year and nobody really minded too much if you were doing a little bit of environmental stuff too. But now, as you say, when returns are down, everybody's looking harder. Well, it was interesting. This is a company I was talking to yesterday. That they said every single investor, ESG just did not come up. What came up was returns. And they really, as they're looking to the end of the year, returns really count. And, you know, these go in cycles. Final question, Dan, this is you've been admirably clear. Again, the US, we're in this with this extraordinary position of essentially energy self-sufficiency, energy security, all the benefits the United States has. We do have an administration that does seem to be committed very strongly to restraining domestic fossil fuel production and sort of seems to be in favor of it uh, elsewhere in the world. I mean, in terms of the supply, the reserves that the United States have, trying to achieve these longer-term goals of continuing to reduce carbon emissions while taking advantage of these extraordinary plentiful resources we have, what's the right mix of energy policy for the United States? You know, I think it's an ecumenical policy, actually. I think one that puts a strong emphasis on technological innovation, because of course, that's what the shale revolution was. That's what's happened uh, with, with solar. But I think that... Um, I think until this crisis, um, there was really not a recognition of what had been achieved in terms of energy security with the shale revolution. One person who saw it early on is a man named Vladimir Putin. And I had a personal experience around that when he was on a platform at a conference in St. Petersburg with Chancellor Merkel. And I was asking the first question, and I was going to ask him the normal question, which is, what are you doing about diversifying your economy? I mentioned shale, and he started shouting at me and said, it's barbaric, it's awful. This is in front of 3,000 people, not comfortable. And I realized afterwards, A, he thought that U.S. shale gas, and shale gas in general, because it thought it come from Europe at that point, uh, would compete with Russian gas, correct? And he thought it would augment the influence of the U.S. in the world today. And here we are. If it wasn't for U.S. shale, i.e. translated, transformed into LNG, shipped to Europe, Europe would be at the mercy of Russia today. So I think it's been transformative. 
and maybe finally recognizing when you talk about energy security, this is energy security. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, we're all by now as well been re-familiarized with that famous moment at the United Nations a few years ago when Donald Trump said that if the Germans weren't careful, they'd be entirely dependent on Russian natural gas. And they sat there laughing at him and saying how absurd. And not everything that Donald Trump said turned out to be true, but that one certainly did. Dan Jurgen, thank you so much indeed for joining us on Free Expression. Well, thank you, Jerry, and congratulations on the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week for Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week when we'll have another deep exploration of the big issues driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.